Hi, this is Alan Chartok. Nearly 70 years after World War II, the number of people with first-hand memories of the Holocaust is rapidly dwindling. According to the Claims Conference, which negotiates survivor payments with Germany, about 500,000 Jewish survivors are still alive. In the U.S., according to one congressional estimate, the number of survivors is roughly 127,000. That's why I'm very grateful to Haiti McKinley for being with us today. Born in Vienna, Austria in 1920, Haiti survived Hitler's march into Austria in March of 1938 and subsequent persecution on Kristallnacht on November 10, 1938. Escaping to London and finally immigrating to the U.S. with the help of an uncle, Haiti has spent a life of great achievement culminating in her current work today as a social worker and marriage and individual counselor in private practice. We'll talk to Haiti about all of this and much more, but first, welcome Haiti McKinley. Hi, Alan. Well, it's so wonderful to have you here. You've been a wonderful volunteer, board member, friend, counselor to all of us for years, and we love you, and it's so nice to see you here today and to have this conversation. I appreciate your taking the time. Good to be here. It's been a long time. Yeah. Uh, our first, I think, relationship was when you moved from the Albany Medical. Yeah. That's a long time. <laughs> long time ago. Haiti, let's start at the beginning. You were born where? In Vienna, Austria. Yeah. And people often wonder whether that's Australia, but it's not. It's a little country next to Germany. Little but important country because it's where Hitler came from. Yes, he did, but also do many other wonderful people, Freud, Strauss, others. When I was in Vienna, I had the feeling that still, to this day, there are overtones of anti-Semitism in the country. Oh, absolutely. I grew up with a feeling of anti-Semitism, and it was just part of life. It never occurred to us that it could be otherwise, and you kind of made your way in between. You kind of floated in between, watching out for anti-Semitic people, but you just expected that the grocer next door, almost any second person. And uh, why that was so, of course, as a young person, I had no idea why people were persecuting us, but it was a natural thing to grow up with. What were your parents doing? My parents were poor. They had a little mom-and-pop store, and we lived on top of it. What was the store? What did um, it oh, they sold butter and eggs and fish and venison and chicken. Really? And we lived on top of, uh, I'm an only child, so the way we communicated was by my writing a note and floating it down to the uh, street, and somebody would take it into my parents' store if I needed something. Well, so it was not good. Well, you were obviously extremely well-educated. You're a brilliant woman. Considering poverty, how did you get so thoughtful, so well-educated? Well, I was lucky. I was a bright child, and I think my father was a bright person. And you know, during those times, many people paid in instead of money in kind. And one of the things my father got instead of money was a library, an adult library. And I was a bored kid, so I was reading all these extremely difficult books, which I didn't understand at age eight, nine, ten. In German. In German, yes. <laughs> that was the native language with which I no longer speak. You no longer speak it out of choice or you no longer speak it out of choice? Yes, I, I find it very difficult. Even after all these years, I find it difficult to speak German. Have you gone back? Many times. And what's that times. been like? Well, I speak English when I can and German when I have to. I've never gone back to Germany, never, ever, ever in all these years. And Austria is more familiar, and there's a dialect, uh, sort of a kind of dialect that the Austrians speak, which is softer and uh, does not remind me as much of the Nazis as Germany would. How did your parents explain anti-Semitism to you? Oh, it was a way of life. If you came home and somebody stopped you on the street and yelled, dirty Jew, and you came home and cried with your, your mother and father, what would they have said? I probably didn't cry because <laughs> I expected yeah. it. I don't think there was much discussion. It was just a way of life. It was like having brown eyes or... Um, I don't really know that there was much discussion about that. You tried to avoid it and tried to be smart and get somewhere. My parents were very anxious for me to be somebody sometime in my life. 
What was school like? School was lucky because I went to a uh, Machen Gymnasium, which is a uh, girls' school, and my father was the supplier of butter and eggs and cheese, so he couldn't have paid for it ever, ever. But because he was able to give the merchandise, I was able to go there. So I got a good education, including some Latin, until Hitler came, then it ended all. What was the split? Was everybody Jewish or? Oh, no, no, no. No, No, very few. Uh But in school, that didn't seem to matter. It was a very good school, an upper-class school, sort of, and being Jewish was not an issue, as I recall. Are you still in touch with any of the classmates? I wish I were. I've lost contact with everybody. Of course, I'm so much older than anybody. Can I ask how old you are? I'll be 94 in April. Oh, that's fantastic. And <laughs> Imagine that. That's fantastic. Okay, so give us a sense of whether you saw it coming, whether your parents saw it coming when Hitler came to the sure. fore. Things were bad in Germany and in Austria, right, in terms of money and economy. Yes, the unemployment was high, but I, being a bright kid, I read newspapers from other countries, I mean from Germany, and I was reading about this guy Hitler, and my parents had no idea. You know, Hitler being elected with, I think, 30% of the population, which is amazing when you think of it, that somebody who changed the world for the worse was elected by 30%. Anyway, so I told my parents about that and about what was happening, that they were killing Jews on the street, throwing people out of the window, Jews losing all their jobs, professors being kicked down the stairs. And so they were prepared. And when Hitler marched into Austria, we actually saw him happened to be driving by our street and things changed immediately after he entered Austria immediately my wife as you know is a Holocaust scholar and she has written a great deal about this but one of the things that has often puzzled her is the German Jewish identity in other words were people more identifying as being German, or were they more cognizant of their Jewish identity in the day? Well, you know, it's like here, I'm a much more American than anything else. And most Americans are, I think, are more American than anything else. So they were more German than Jewish and more Austrian than Jewish. Of course, there were pockets of very religious Jews, but we did not know them. They lived in a uh, another part of Vienna and kept to themselves and dressed in a certain way as they do today. So we were totally Austrian, spoke the Austrian dialect and ate Austrian food and got fat the Austrian way. <laughs> so when you told your parents about this terrible guy, Hitler, what were their responses to that? Well, I think... They became worried about me, and they were thinking of how they could get me out of the country unsuccessfully. Right from the get-go. Yes, they tried, as a matter of fact, to find a husband for me at age 18, a French husband, but nothing worked out, really. But I was very lucky, as you mentioned. I was able to go to England, which is something that I brought about with great difficulty, I should add. I'd like to hear much more about that. Can you tell us how you did it? Oh, yes. Standing in line all night long in front of the British consulate, all night long, in a cold, cold, cold winter night. With your parents? or No, by myself. I just did that for myself. My parents couldn't leave that easily because you could not leave unless you paid your income tax. And my father had no way of paying income tax because they had taken his store away. Let's go back to that. Do you remember when that happened? Oh, yes. They came one day and said, this is no longer your store. This lady who's been a Nazi for many years wants it and it's hers. Goodbye. The upstairs also, the upstairs? That came later. No, the apartment, we remained in the apartment. That was very fortunate that we were still able to live there, but we would have le- lost the apartment very soon thereafter. Did you feel like your stomach was falling out of your body when they came to take the store? Oh, yes. I didn't really realize the enormity of it, but it was my father's life. That's all he knew. He had been a World War I veteran, walked home from Russia, if you can imagine that, from Siberia, and worked in his store all his life and his father and grandfather before. Wow. So he'd been an Austrian soldier. So let's go back to standing online at the British Embassy. Oh, yes, that was kind of interesting. So we'd stand in line all night long, freezing, freezing, and then some Nazi kid would come and say, 
we are reversing the line. In other words, the person last in line is the first, so I being maybe the 10th in line would wait another six hours in a freezing cold. But eventually I was able to obtain a British visa and that allowed me to go to England after Kristallnacht. I was able, with the help of an organization called Gildermeister, whom I've tried to find all these many years, and they are gone, in order to repay for their kindness. With their help, I was able to leave Austria. They gave me a ticket to London and $2 for the porter. Not that I had luggage, but they gave me two, I mean, two shillings for so the you're, porter. You're, so you're online... You finally get in, great relief. Who do you see there sitting behind the desk? Well, in that case, a British person who uh, um, allowed me to uh, obtain a visa because I had, which I didn't tell you, I had gotten a job as a domestic servant in England. How did you do that? I'm saying to myself, what a smart kid. I took a British phone book and I looked for Jewish names. And a Jewish name would be Goldberg. Greenberg in Austria. I don't know necessarily that that would be the case here. It would be. It would be. (laughs) You know that, yeah. (laughs) I wrote to three or four people saying, I'm a Jewish girl and I'd like to leave my country and work in England. Can you use me as a domestic servant? So these were people in England? In England. Okay. And I had one answer. Okay. And that answer allowed me to obtain a visa because I had a job. Who was the answer from? I no longer remember the name because when I got there, they said, hi, we don't have a job for you, but we wanted to rescue you. We will get you another job. And they knew it was Can you imagine that? And they got me another job. That's wonderful. And who was the other job? That was with a family called Sweet, and they mistreated me from the word go. (laughs) They, They were not Jewish? No. No, yeah. and they were terrible. And they, they weren't were sweet. Absolutely <laughs> horrible. They lived about an hour from London, and they expected this 18-year-old girl who had never boiled an egg to cook dinner for six people every night, to wash the floors, to wash the outside of the house, which is what they did, and to make fireplaces. In Britain, you prepare fireplaces because there's no such thing as, uh, there was no such thing as central heating. So I had to do all of that, and I really couldn't do it. And so they were dissatisfied with me and got me another job, which was great. So they they got you another job. After doing all of that work, who was the next job? Well, they had to find another job for me. They couldn't really. They found me a job with a family whose name I've forgotten. The husband was American, the woman was English, and they were very kind to me. And I became the cook's assistant, although she looked at me and said, what? Yeah. That's who you brought me, you know, that skinny girl. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was helpful. And then my parents came over and took over my job. And how they came over, don't ask me because I don't know. We well, never talked about it. So they came over. Yeah. They took your job. And I went to America. And you went to America. But let me go back a little because the details are what's so fascinating. When you left Germany, they gave you the two shillings for the porter, and was this a train that you... I went by train, and, you know, I must apologize for the fact that I have lost a lot of... Not that I lost memory because I'm old. I lost this memory because it was painful, so I don't really remember. I got on the train at the border. They said, Jews out, and I thought that was the end. And they looked for jewels. You Jews, they said, you always have jewels all over the place, and we know you are hiding them. So they spent a lot of time searching us, and I had nothing. I had the two shillings. (laughs) And then they led us back into the train. I got to Belgium, and from Belgium, I went to England by boat but I don't know how I managed to do that. And you don't remember the boat? Oh, no. I came over uh, to this country on a boat called Aquitania, Uh which no longer exists. It was sunk as a troop ship. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, Amy McKinley, let's go back and talk about the English experience. Your parents are there. And so people will be saying, well, it's good her parents got there because then they 
they didn't have to go to the camps. Yes, yes. I must tell you that again because the fact that we never talked about it. How did they get out of Austria? These old people, I mean, at that time, old, not very much able to handle things. How did they get out of Austria? How did they get into England? And there they were in London, and we met. It was amazing. We never talked about it. This business about not talking about the Holocaust among survivors is something you hear about a lot, don't you? Yes, and I did not talk about the Holocaust until I met Shelley Shapiro, who runs Holocaust Survivors and Friends, and Wonderful I began woman. to work for her. I mean, a volunteer for her. Yeah. But I never talked about it. I never spoke German. I wanted to become very American right away. Okay, so tell us about how you got from England to America. You, you took a ship, but... Do you remember what the mechanics of getting over here were? Well, I had this uncle. I had a non-Jewish uncle called Charlie. My father's right. sister, Therese, married a uh, non-Jew who uh, had come to America as a teenager, jumped ship, and became an, uh, an American. And he brought 12 of us over, none of whom ever thanked him, I might add, excluding me. How come? I don't know. They just thought he should have done it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why he should have, but he brought 12 of us over. It's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So you get off the boat, and then what happens? There was my uncle, and he said, Hi, tomorrow you go to work. That's what he said in German. And tomorrow I went to work. Doing Next what? day. I worked as a, a scullery maid in a fancy house on Fifth Avenue. Really? Um, and I lasted a very short time. Because you weren't good at it? Oh, no, because I, you know, I had never even boiled an egg. I didn't know how to do anything, really. But I tried. Then I got another job, and I learned, and another job, and then I ended up being a waitress for many, many years. And that allowed me to save some money and go to school. Where were you waitressing? Oh, many, many places. Downtown, I lived in New York at that time. Downtown, uh, fancy restaurants. Um, One of the fanciest ones was the restaurant, the United Nations, where I saw Mrs. Roosevelt, which was really the highlight of my existence, to wait on Mrs. Roosevelt. And where did you live? What street did you live on? On 70th, West 70th Street. Uh, 107 West 70th. My neighborhood. Your neighborhood, right. So now you're, you're, you're waitressing in New York. What comes next? Well, I realized that I really had to have a profession. I couldn't be a waitress all my life. And I learned through friends that being an x-ray technician was something that you could learn fast and was paid fairly well. So I went to school. What school? It wasn't a school. It was an x-ray technician who trained us. So it had to do with one of the hospitals, but I don't remember which of the hospitals. And it was a few months. She did that in a few months. And we, I had a certificate. I was now a certified x-ray technician. And I got a job because there were many, many jobs. And uh, I got a job next day in Brooklyn with a wonderful man called Dr. Epstein, whom I loved, who died young as a radiologist. So many people died of... They didn't have the protection. That's right. And I worked for him as long as I could. And then I went back to school and became a social worker because I felt that that's what I wanted to do much more. And being an x-ray technician was a dangerous thing to do. Indeed it was, especially in those days. Yes. Now they wear badges and protective gear and walk out of the yes. room and do all the rest yes. of it. Yeah. Yes. Let's take a little break here to understand what was going on in your mind about the places you left. Were you aware or did you just want to say, okay, that was then, this is now? Oh, that was then, now is now. I did not read German. I did not speak German. I sort of made a line under that and I had a new life. I was going to be an American girl and I learned English very fast by going to movies on 42nd Street, which were 40 cents. I know people who have been in America for 20 years and still can't speak English. I know, but I was determined. And somehow it came easy to me. My father was never really able to learn English. My mother was, my stepmother, but my father really never managed it. So it depends how lucky you are. And since I never spoke German anymore, it became easy. And I saw a lot of movies and read American newspapers. And I had many, many waitress jobs. And certainly I had to learn 
draw two. I remember the first time I didn't know what draw one meant, and he fired me. Draw one means a cup of coffee, right? Okay. <laughs> and he, he said, hey, you're, you're not right. much of a waitress. Get out of here. Here's 50 cents. I still remember that. He gave me 50 cents and fired me. <laughs> but if you weren't going to ever speak German again, you must have had some understanding about how poisonous what you had left was, even if it was not on the surface. I really tried to move away from it all in a way. Um, it's, it was horrendous and horrible, and I was aware of the concentration camps. Then, you know, I became aware of... Uh, and I must say that I began to realize that human beings were evil. I was too young to think of that earlier, but then uh, I realized that, and that was kind of sad. Do you think all human beings oh, are Oh, no, 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 <laughs> certainly not, but some are evil. And being a social worker, I even think that even evil people have a good side, which is hard to think about concentration camp guards. But they were brainwashed. At least I felt that way. Sure. Okay, so first of all, did you lose any relatives in the home? Many, many. Fortunately, not my parents, but many relatives, uncles and cousins, many. Some stayed thinking that, oh, it can't be that bad. And, of course, they were caught up, sent to camps, never heard of. And when I go to schools, I show them pictures of little children and my relatives who were killed. And there's one little baby about three months old, and I ask the kids, what did this baby do to deserve being killed in a concentration camp? And what did my grandmother, age 79, do, who was killed in a concentration camp, an old lady who had never done anything bad to anyone. So it's hard. Haiti, you, you now have us to the point where you're going to go to a school of social work. Um, how did you choose the school? How did you afford to pay? I afforded to pay by working as a waitress, and I paid as I went along. What school was it? Columbia School of Social Work. I first got a bachelor's degree because I had not finished high school. And Columbia was so good to me, they simply ignored the fact that I did not finish high school. And they allowed me to matriculate as a regular student. Well, how did you have the knowledge to sort of even make the application and go into it? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I was determined. I don't know. I think in refugee circles, you learn about things, and my uncle may have known. Of course, no, he didn't know anything about school. I don't know. I went up there, and there was a wonderful guy who talked to me, and he said, you need to take an English course in order to matriculate. So I took an English course, but I spoke better English than the instructor, who was a foreign person. So they said, okay, never mind, never mind English. Really? will matriculate you. And they gave me a year off. So they were very, very good to me. Year off, meaning you waited a year before you matriculated? No, instead of getting the bachelor's in, so in, I believe it would have been three years, they let me do it oh, in I two see. years. Mm. They just allowed me to do that. And then I went to the School of Social Well, before you get there, what did you major in in college? Sociology. Uh -huh. And then I went to see the professor in sociology, and I said, what do you think? Do you think if I got a PhD in sociology, uh, I could get a job? And he said, quote, can you type? Mm -hmm. That was the, uh, my first mm -hmm. put down as a woman. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> well, I think all of us who got PhDs were subjected to some of that. Remember one guy saying to me, yeah, you'll drive a cab like the rest of us. Huh? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Haiti McKinley, so now we go to the School of Social Work itself. What were your politics like at that time? Were you left or right? Oh, or very liberal, very liberal. I thought that we should all live in peace and that rich people should give money to poor people because my father had been a socialist, and being a socialist in Austria was not what people think it was. It's somewhat left, so I was. my politics were very left. And social work kind of 
fit in a little bit because we were thinking about poor people. And what division of social work were you in? Were you in a, an agency or as a psychotherapist? I don't think that many people were doing that in those days. No, I worked for the Red Cross first, American mm-hmm. Red Cross. Did you do an internship or a quiet internship yes, at the time? Yes, at yeah. the Red Cross, the Red one Cross. at Red Cross, and another one at the Brooklyn Hospital. And so we dealt at the Red Cross. It was difficult because we dealt with poor people who wanted something from us. And my supervisor would say, no, you can't give it to him. And I thought a social worker just gave things to people. But she said, no, he's not entitled. Next. Social workers can be hard people, can't they? (laughs) (laughs) I've always found it to be so. Yeah. So tell me, were you dating boys at the time? Yes, yes, of course I was dating boys. Yeah, all kinds of boys. (laughs) Yeah. And... Were you living with the uncle still? Yes. I continued living with the uncle, paying $7 a week for a room, which is what he got for a room in a rooming house. He had three rooming houses. Really? 107 West 70th Street. That now, if I had Posh. thought it, <laughs> I'd be worth $2 You bet. <laughs> you would probably more. Right. Yeah. Uh, and what years were these? The 50s? Is- yes, uh, these were the 50s. Right. And then I came to this area and got... Well, wait, well, wait, wait. So you graduated from the Columbia School of Social Work. Right. You were working with the Red Cross as an intern, but then did you work for them full-time or no? No, no. no. So once I got a uh, Master's of Social Work and... Uh, this area had a lot of jobs. And how did you find out about this area, the, the capital region? I may have had some friends. I did have some friends here. So I came here, and I was offered like six jobs, and I took one in Schenectady. Really? Family and Children's Service in Schenectady. What did you do for them? I was the only social worker. I mean, um, Paul Barnett was my supervisor, but I was the only social worker. Everything, mm. adoptions, marriage counseling, individual counseling, anybody walked in. I was it. How long did you stay there? Not long because something else turned up. I learned that the state university had a job, uh, had jobs for social workers, and I um, became a supervisor for eight social work students at Ellis Hospital through the state university. Mm-hmm. So I worked for the um, state university for many years. People should understand that in order for a social work student to have an internship, they have to be supervised right. by master's social work. That's and so right. that was your job at yes. SUNY. So that that was wonderful. And I loved working for Ellis. Can you remember any of the war stories from your supervisory days? I mean, you oh. look, the, the, <laughs> look, not everybody made it. And you were the thing that was either helping them or Oh, it was a a terrible power. There was one student, and I certainly will not name his name, whom I wanted to fire in the worst way, and the school refused. And he is now a very, very important person in this area, very important. And I didn't see it. And not only is he important, but he does wonderful things. So uh, making mistakes, many mistakes. Have you ever talked to him about it? Oh, yes, (laughs) many times. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's that's, that's great. That's great. So did anybody ever get kicked out? Yes, I had to kick out people. That was very difficult. I had one Nazi-type person whom I had to kick out, and I don't recall how I knew about his politics. Yes, I kicked out a number of students who didn't seem to be people who would make good social workers. And the school, I would suggest it, and the school would decide. And I don't know that they uh, followed my advice, uh, but they did kick out some. When I say the word social worker to you, what do you think of? Who's a social worker? What is a social worker? Well, it's very different views. People often think about social workers as people who bring uh, bring you the... Uh, um, what do you call it, money, uh, the... Um, the dole money, whatever, yeah. Yes, and the husband would hide under under the uh, bed because she was supposed to be a single mom and get yeah. some money from the uh, government. government. I had very early wanted to do what I'm doing, although the school was not very much in favor of social workers in private practice. They really wanted you to go and work with poor people. And I was being an elitist and said, I want an office and talk to people who come in and see me because they want to. And now, obviously, that's sort of the gold standard. Yes. More and more people are doing that yes. and doing either counseling or doing psychotherapy 
psychotherapy as social workers. I happen to have a twin brother who is a PhD in social work out in St. Louis and making a great deal of money. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a Good. Gr- a great deal of money. But I worked in social work camps as a young man, at Bronx House Emanuel Camp in Copic, and I understood the rigor with which social workers approached the way in which people were dealt with. That rigor is important, right? I think social workers are wonderful. I really do. They generally don't make much money, and they do wonderful work. Nowadays, when psychiatrists are so much used for medication only... Pills. Right. It falls to psychologists and social workers, and of course, social workers don't do testing. Psychologists do that. Social workers do most of the grubby work. When you say grubby, what do you mean? Well, the hard work, going into bad neighborhoods to see if the kids are taken care of, to do adoptions, difficult work. Working with poor people is hard because often they don't want to be talking about their problems, and it's difficult. Hayden McKinley, how long did you stay at SUNY? Twelve years. And then what happened? And then I retired and did my private practice first full-time and now part-time. I know of your reputation. You had a lot of people coming to see you during that. Yes, that's good because I was so lucked having been known on television and radio that people know my name. Why don't we talk about radio and television? How did that happen? Well, I wish I remembered her name. There was a woman who had a program on WGY. Ellie Pankin. No, way before Ellie Pankin. She died. You might remember her name, but she mostly talked about birds. And she wanted someone to talk about something like social work. So she went to the school and said, send me someone to talk about what you guys do at the school. We should remind everybody that WGY in those days was a terrific station and had a lot of great talk shows of one kind or another, interview shows. It has, in some people's opinion, gone downhill. It's changed a lot. Anyway, my boss, the dean, said he was not good in public talking. He got scared, so he sent me. And she said, oh, my God. And she talked to me, wonderful. Stay here. Come every day. So um, Come every day? No, I was kidding. Once a week. And she died, and Ellie Pankin took over that job. And when I say that I helped Ellie Pankin get her job, that's another story. But Ellie, I want to hear it. Well, I don't even know how it came about. I heard about the job, and I knew Ellie Pankin and said to her, you've got to do that. Yeah. You just got to do that. You are ideal for so that. So you told her. And she got the job. Great. And uh, so she immediately engaged me to come to the station once a week on Monday and encourage people to write in problems that they want solved. So once a week for an hour, Ellie and I read letters and solved the problems. And it was the most wonderful thing. Absolutely unbelievable. And people still remember it. I was going to say, do you ever meet anybody on the street who say, you saved my life? All the time. But really, truly, they say, you saved my life. And I have many, many letters that people wrote to the station. And then Ellie died, and I went to WQBK for a short time because the station changed into a music station. Mm -hmm. But while I was there, we did the same thing. Stevie Swire, whom you know, and I did uh, the same thing, answering letters. But it was a different station, very different. And then television was something else. Elisa Streeter, who was then not the Elisa Street that she's today, came to my office and said, oh, well, would you like to uh, do something on uh, on the station, like one minute something? Channel 10. Channel 10. And I did for quite a long time, and that was very helpful. Same thing, people wrote in yeah. with problems. Yeah, and, you yeah. That. and working with Elisa was wonderful. She's a wonderful woman. She was on our media project for a long time. We love her. And so what happened then is that the word got out that there was this wonderful, kind, accessible woman who was doing psychotherapy, and the line, the lines grew longer. Yes. Uh, people still remember the name, uh, which is wonderful. And now I have a very small practice. We travel. I have a house in the country. Okay, let's talk about we. Well, I'm married to Joe, Joe Levenger. How'd you meet him? 
I had been married to Will McKinley, who was professor of physics at RPI, and he and Joe were friends and may have even shared an office. So when Will McKinley died and Joe Levinger's wife died, we were both widowed and became friends and then married. How long have you been married? Fifteen years. Fifteen years. And I know, because I've seen you volunteering in fund drives and coming to board meetings, and he's there with you all the time. You you have quite a companionship. Yes, yes. It's very fortunate, I think, for both of us, but certainly for me. And so when you talk about the dynamics of people coming to you with problems, I mean, I would never ask you to talk about any specific people, but what is it that makes the society so in need of psychotherapy? Well, you know how small families are. There is no one to talk to. There really isn't a grandma or an aunt or or, or anyone or a cousin who would listen to your problems. People really have gotten used to not listening to problems, but say, find a psychologist, find a psychiatrist, find a social worker. That's become much more the way our families are geared. And as you know, kids leave for college and never come back and go to California and start their families. No more extended families. Right. No more uncles like your wonderful Exactly. So people like me are needed, and the problems are often problems that a family could solve. Like, what do we do with aunt so-and-so? Should we, uh, you know, find someone to help her? Or what do we do with this youngster who won't go to school? Family would often take care of that, but no longer. So I've heard the term treatment-resistant. In other words, there are some people who go into psychotherapy but who don't really trust or get along or or listen to themselves or they resist the treatment. Uh, Oh, many people, and it used to be much more men than women. Men felt that this was unmanly to tell your problem, especially to some woman. That has changed to some extent, but you still find many people who are court-appointed patients. In other words, they have to go. They have to go. And I now see two persons who have to come. As it turns out, okay, I like them, they like me, and we find things to talk about, but they've got to come. Is there anything in contemporary society that you think is particularly dangerous? Let me give you an example, because I know it's kind of vague, but we have now insisted on, with sexual predators, giving everybody a level one, a level two, a level three diagnosis. And then they have to live with that forever because there's an assumption that they can't really change and therefore they have to be labeled. I wonder how you feel about that. I disagree on that. I truly, truly believe that people can change. I have seen them change. I don't feel good about that particular issue that you raised. I think there should be a time limit. The person should go into treatment. There generally is need for treatment. and These people often are suffering terribly under what they are doing. And to be stymied for life, they can't get a job, they can't get an apartment, I would really change that rule if I could. What do you think it says about society that we insist on this? Sex is something I think the American society is not very comfortable with. Really? With seven million copies of Playboy and and, 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 and (laughs) we're still not comfortable with it. I think so. I think so. What do you think that is? What is that sexual tension that is felt in the country? I, I see it all the time. I think I couldn't agree with you more. We're both a repressed society and a needy society. I just, I wonder what that's all about. I don't know, but having lived in Europe and going to Europe very frequently, I see that uh, this is a subject that is much easier to handle in, let's say, France or Germany. What do you mean, for example? Well, I think that's not so much problem to talk to your kids about sex in France. I don't think so. And here, I think, in America, we do have problems uh, to have that talk with our kids. We, uh, we assume, oh, they'll, they'll work it out themselves, and they don't. And they become pregnant at 15, and we don't know what to do. So when Freud, who you referenced earlier in the conversation, coming from Vienna, of course, one of his basic theories is that character is developed very early and that we are what we are from the time we're four or five years old. Do you subscribe to that? No, and I think he would have changed his mind also. I know that that is his theory. And to some extent, let's say if you are 
uh, if you become a compulsive child, you are likely to be a compulsive adult. So Haiti McKinley is not the same woman in her 90s that she was when she was a kid? I would say now when I think of it and I think of myself as a little kid, I, I see myself yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, too. me too. Okay. It's yeah. true about me. After all, you spend the important, important years with your parents, and what you see is your parents, and you, because they are your gods, you try to imitate them. No question. That's where our big education comes right. in. And so my parents really were <laughs> basket cases to some extent, in a way. They did not manage very well. And very early, I realized that I could not fashion myself after them. I had to become someone different. My mother was my stepmother. My mother died when I was a year old. So my stepmother... And you were the only child. I was the said. only child. My stepmother could not have children. Did you bond with the stepmother? No. I hated her. <laughs> <laughs> I, I only say that because... And did you know that from the beginning? Is, I mean, how did that work? Yes. She was a dumpy, fat lady, and I was a skinny girl. And people would say to my father, she looks just like her mother yeah, about yeah. me. And I'm looking at the dumpy, fat lady and say, I'm not looking like her. She was incredibly good to me. And it was a tough job to take somebody else's little nasty kid and raise her. And she wanted, she told me she wanted me to marry the Shah of somebody or other, that mm. I was good enough to marry the best, the king or... And yet you hated her. <laughs> well, you know, she... I've heard of evil uh, stepmothers of before, she but was, it didn't sound that way. She threw a boyfriend down the stairs. She did? <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> a, a boyfriend when, when she was When I was 13. And I shouldn't have had a boyfriend at 13. Oh, she's that your boyfriend? Yes. I thought you were going to tell me she threw her boyfriend. No, no, my yeah. boyfriend. She found us kissing, and she threw him down the stairs. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> was that the it moment? Of, is that the moment the hate came on? Well, it was exacerbated. <laughs> it certainly was. When they came to England and took your job, which you told yes. us earlier, how did they end up doing my mother was an incredible cook. You cannot imagine what a cook. Yeah, that's people, why she was fat. Right. Yeah. And the people thought that they had gone to heaven because all of a sudden, after eating English food, which I don't want to discuss further, yeah. <laughs> they were eating Austrian food cooked by my mother, and they were just, oh, so happy, so happy, and they didn't want to let her go. But eventually she came to America. Oh, they did come to America. Yes, yeah. they did. And tell me about, you know, your relationship with your folks. When they came to the country, you didn't like her, so did that stifle your relationship with the, with both of them? No, I really would have taken care of them, and I did take care of them when they were old. How died. old did they get? My father was 93, and he died at Daughters of Sarah. And my mother was 93, and she died at Daughters of Sarah. And they had a wonderful, wonderful life at Daughters of Sarah. And I took care of them at that time. But when they first came, they got a job as a domestic couple right away, and I hardly ever saw them. And I wouldn't speak a German. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and your father they, wouldn't uh, speak English. <laughs> couldn't speak we English. Tried. We tried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was okay. Yeah. It was okay, really. Now that people are growing older, what do you think the society can expect? I mean, we're having more Alzheimer's. But on the other hand, people are growing much older than they were. Yes, and I think I don't really know enough about it, but I think society is not yet prepared for that. You're quite right. People do grow. A, a, a woman just last week died. A Holocaust survivor died at 110, which is amazing. So people do get older and Alzheimer's is raging. I think the uh, country will have to deal with that fact and uh, in a way make more help available to old people because the family is not geared in this country. To no more extended families, right? That's yeah. right. So I hope for the best after I'm gone that the people after me, old people after me will get help. I'm lucky I have a husband and he has four great children and we have a good family. What do you think happened with families? No. Distances. I think that's op opportunities. Opportunities. Got a job in California. Yeah, you told me there. that you told me that your father was the fourth person who owned that same business. Isn't right. that right? Right. That, that wasn't going to happen anymore. No. <laughs> no, because there's there's a job somewhere in Idaho you go there. 
and it's expected of you in this country, and it's wonderful. It has been said that a son is a son until he takes him a wife, and a daughter is a daughter for the rest of their life. Not that... really anymore. <laughs> I don't think in this country. I think the daughter goes to medical school in Idaho, and off she goes, and never comes back except Thanksgiving, maybe. <laughs> Well, Thanksgiving is good. <laughs> so when people are so frustrated with all of the problems of the world, the international problems, the rest of it, how do you teach people to cope? Well, often it means strengthening yourself a bit, believing that you could do it, and lowering your expectations. I believe that that is a really important aspect lowering your expectations for yourself and your kids. They're not all going to be famous doctors. They're not all going to be going to college. It's okay if they go to community college, to high school, to whatever. I think that's one thing. I'm not sure that I can give advice that would solve your... No, 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 no but, I think it's a, but I think it is a problem, and I, I love what you just said. You know, I never had expectations that my kids would have to be excel. I remember my growing up on Fire Island and all of these kids, their mothers were fighting about who would be the first Jewish president of the United States. Absolutely. <laughs> and my mother would say, well, my, my boys are okay. You know, I don't expect too much. I think when the expectations aren't too high, that you may have a better shot. Yes, if you can say to your kid, you're okay. You're okay. Just do what you do. Do it well, whatever it is. But you're not doing this for me. Now, my parents said you're doing it for me. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. But that was another time. Right? It was, yes. Yeah, another time. Absolutely. And there were expectations that the kids would take care of the parents. Yes. And one did the best one could. And fortunately, nowadays, well, in a way, fortunately, there is a lot of help. On the other hand, it's kind of sad for so many lonely old people to have their family elsewhere, don't know their grandchildren or see them very rarely. And grandchildren, as you know, nobody writes a card to grandma anymore. Grandma sends a check. <laughs> The 2,000-year-old man. You know, all of those kids, and not one writes a postcard saying, how are you, Pop? Right. <laughs> and the only way you ever hear from your grandchild is when they endorse your check. That's when you see their signature. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you were empress, and you could say, okay, I'm going to change social work education in the United States. What would you do? I don't know. I thought the education was quite okay. We had extraordinary professors. After all, this was Columbia University. Great school. Now there are. I just happened, by the way, to walk by the Columbia School of Social Work on my four-mile hike, and there it's an imposing building. Yes, they are, but it wasn't. It wasn't, it wasn't when I then. was there. I've walked by there many, many times, and sometimes they have a little park. You need a key for that little park, and I would like to go in there and sit in the little park. I cannot complain. Almost all the social workers I know are really okay in their work, and they care, and they want to do good for people for very little money. What the school could do is to elevate the profession so people get paid more. Sure. You know, the interesting thing about schools of social work, is when I worked for the New York City Police Commissioner, Patrick P. Murphy, as his academic advisor, I had this idea because at the time, there weren't enough placements for social work students. So I had this great idea. There were 72 police precincts, and I said, why don't we put a social work student in every one of the police precincts? And the commissioner liked the idea, and we called a meeting. And there was the head of Fordham and the head of NYU School of Social Work and the rest of it. Because, as I said before in the show, you had to have a master of social oh, work yeah. in order to be a supervisor. Well, they got all concerned about that. That <laughs> is a problem. They got all concerned about that. And they said, and we said, well, we're going to put in for a grant and we're going to get supervisors to do this. And then they started to fight these deans of social work about which philosophy of which school was going to be responsible for hiring the guy. Uh, and I remember one particular dean used the term with me which was so offensive that I'm still offended because it was a police department. So he said, remember, Dr. Chartok, there's a big difference between authority and authoritarianism. 
Oh my! <laughs> sort of looking down his nose and talking it and talking. Still to you. remember that? Oh, I do. Just like you remember certain things in your life, right. so do I. And it was amazing. And I must say, I really didn't like him for that. And on the other hand, I have to tell you, uh, Haiti, that I've used it myself a thousand times. <laughs> that term, you, you the did, difference did between authority and authoritarianism. <laughs> yeah. So this idea that you're a Freudian or you're a Horniite or you're a Jungian, uh, you know, it seems to me that. The basic principle is whether you're nice to somebody or not. I, absolutely true. I went to a long Gestalt training, two-year Gestalt. Gestalt training, which I often think about it. Do I do Gestalt? And no. what is Gestalt again? Well, for God knows. I can't even describe <laughs> it. It has to do with being in the present. But it, it's become part of my work without my knowing it. These two years that I spent training with Gestalt, somehow they got to me, but I can't even tell you how or what. To, what, what, to what it is. <laughs> Somebody yeah. will come on the show and, t- and well, talk well, actually, about Gestalt. I actually have a very good friend, Shelley Breyer, who is a Gestaltist. And every time she sends money during uh-huh. the fund drive, I always say, the well-known Gestaltist. <laughs> <laughs> Shelley Breyer. So um, it's an interesting area, and I take it you're very happy that you've done this with your life so far, and I think you have a long way to go. You're a very young woman for somebody who's 94 How years old. How about that? <laughs> you know, you are. It's amazing. And I guess the last thing I want to ask you is genetics, writing from that. Your father lived into his 90s. We're all living at least 10 or 20 years longer than our parents did, or we hope we are. So based on what you've seen in social work, are the genetics, psychological genetics, played out in the people you see? Uh, how do you mean? Are they like their parents? In the same way we would be, our parents are fat, we're fat, you know, or this or that. Well, I think it is everybody's hope not to be like their parents and everybody's problem to be just like their parents. I think we all suffer from that situation. We all want to be different, but we cannot avoid falling into the, some of the same traps when you look at your life. Really uh, even I see myself in my father to some extent, now that I'm not mad at him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. For marrying the evil stepmother. Well, there was no reason. He did the best he could. It was, and it sounds like she did very too. Poor. My parents were very poor. You know, in Europe, if you owe money, they come to your house and they put a uh, stamp on the bottom of your furniture, meaning you cannot sell the furniture. It belongs to them, whoever they yeah. are. And our place was filled with stamps. Piece of furniture had a stamp on it. We couldn't sell a bed. So we were really, really very poor. And somehow I never really wanted for anything. So I can't complain. And I wish my parents were still alive. By the time I got on to be to the radio and television, they were told by other people, but they really couldn't appreciate that I had sort of done something good, like giving advice on, on the radio. So I wish they had lived longer. We've been talking with Haiti McKinley, Holocaust survivor, currently a social worker in private practice. Haiti, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Uh, we all love you and have for a long, long time. So thank you for being with us. And thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.